Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about the biggest political event of this year, the 2016 US presidential election. My name's Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. Today I'm joined by Michael Brendan Doherty, who's a conservative writer and a columnist at The Week, and we're going to be talking about Donald Trump's video message about his first 100 days, which came out last night on YouTube. So, Michael, before we get on to the substance of the Trump's video statement yesterday, let's talk a little bit about the way the statement came out, because uh, we know that Trump had a meeting with a lot of high-flying TV executives and producers and presenters yesterday, and the meeting was apparently a disaster in which Trump shouted at them and everybody got very cross. And then in a sort of classic Trump one-two punch, he then, a few hours later, brought out this video, a statement of intent on YouTube, thereby skipping over the the media and um, suckering them once again. Is that your interpretation of what happened? Yeah, that's basically how it went down. I mean, the reports about the meeting were in the New York Post, and essentially that's a place where Trump likes to leak things, and... It was kind of a nasty way to go about it because the meeting itself was off the record. So in a sense, he had this meeting, he dressed down figures like Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN, and then they couldn't say anything about it. And then he goes to the Post and, you know, people close to him narrate the meeting in which... You know, the story they tell is this story of him kind of smacking them around like children. And then he's followed that up by canceling a meeting with the New York Times because the New York Times board made it clear that they wanted the meeting to be on the record. Apparently, just very recently, that's back on. Oh, that that might be true. Trump has now tweeted that it's back on. It's it's going to be a com- very complicated game of chess between Trump and the New York Times. <laughs> and yeah, so he, he puts out this statement on Twitter. And it's, in a way, I mean, it seems like we're, we're already preparing to write the history books that Franklin Delano Roosevelt mastered the medium of radio and kind of spoke directly to the American people through this new medium that they were all using. And now we're going to say that you know, Donald Trump used Twitter in this in this way to to get beyond the press yeah and 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 to speak directly to the nation itself it is kind of nuts and it's going to drive the media insane I mean, I think he gets away with it a lot because he does expose the the sort of hypocrisy and the terrible bias within the media. But I wonder if how long do you think he'll be able to get away with these if as you say it was a sort of dirty trick leaking to the to the New York Post what happened, having promised it was an off-the-record meeting. I wonder how long he'll be able to get away with that before the public starts to think, oh, maybe he's as deceptive and fraudulent as the media, if not more so. It's it's very tough to say because the, the media and Congress are somehow more unpopular than Trump, who is himself the most unpopular man ever elected to the presidency. Yeah. So it does seem like, at least for a while, he can get away with making the media his foe. And in a kind of absurd way, I think the media is going to take take the bait. I mean, in, in a way, maybe the media is the media itself by uh, congregating on social media, on Twitter, and constantly talking shop, constantly expressing their opinion of what's happening in Washington, are in a way making the argument for Trump that they are biased, that they have already come to this with a preconceived storyline 
that they're going to impose on the event. Yeah. So in a way, you know, the media is not husbanding its credibility. And the general tone of hysteria since November 8th has not helped either, um, especially in contrast to the... That's why the Twitter video was so brilliant by Trump, was because he was very controlled. He was reading from a script, mm. somewhat woodenly, I think. Yeah. And these were... Uh, the, the policies he was articulating in this video were the most popular things broad-based that he campaigned on and you know what were absent what was absent from it were the most divisive elements so he didn't mention the wall he didn't mention mexico's going to pay for the wall you know he just basically indicated that there was not going to be new investigation of hillary clinton and in fact in a separate media appearance he said that he wanted to give her time to heal and that he didn't want to hurt her yes you know so there was no promise of i'm going to lock her up is this what will happen then? The Trump that presents himself directly to the people through the internet will be a much more uh, moderate figure. And then the Trump who deals with the media will be expertly trolling them and getting them to destroy themselves by sort of hinting at extremism and, and that sort of stuff. I don't think he's going to lock himself into one persona for the rest of this, because in some ways he is still uncontrolled on social media. Mm. I mean, it, it was... Uh, you know, on the same night that he releases this statement, which is scripted and, you know, felt as poll-tested as anything that Hillary Clinton could put out herself, yeah. he also just tweets, you know, oh, I'd love for Nigel Farage to be the <laughs> ambassador to the United States. I get along with him great. Let's do it. Yeah, that's... Which is such a, it's such an absurd and and cartoonish breaking of diplomatic norms between the supposed special relationship that it's, I mean, it's just silly. <laughs> uh, so I think, I think we're going to get, I think we're going to get multiple Trumps yeah. across, across time in this medium. This is the, the thing that everything seems to boil down to is nobody can figure out the idiotic Trump from the brilliant instinctive genius Trump. Right. I mean, they are one in the same. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing is that he is, you know, if you meet, powerful men of a certain age who are catered to like this they often have habituated themselves to think and act very quickly and intuitively and to change their whole view of events or of personalities on a dime yeah and it's it comes across to the rest of us as a lack of integrity or you know just following whims but i mean it, it does seem to be more that he is just very good at calculating where the value is for him moment to moment. And that's why he's that's why he's compelling to watch on television. And I suppose talking about the actual the substance of the speech, you think you you spy the hand of Steve Bannon and possibly Jared Kushner in it. What makes you say that? I say that because Steve Bannon has, you know, obviously he's known as this editor of breitbart.com mm. and this kind of wild man populist who stirs up division etc but he's also by far the strongest voice in the trump circle for remaking the republican party into what trump calls the workers party mm. and so this emphasis on the emphasis in the video on bringing jobs back through bilateral trade agreements uh, instead of the trans-pacific partnership or on 
eliminating energy regulations that, that stopped the United States from developing more shale oil fields or, um, or the, the pipeline that could employ men. I mean, that has Bannon written all over, yeah. especially, especially the emphasis on jobs, right? That this is not on, you know, a typical Republican apparatchik would get, go to the microphone and say, we're going to achieve 4% growth. And when you hear uh, Donald Trump talk about jobs, I think you should hear the voice of Stephen Bannon. And at the same time, I think, you know, Kushner and others will push Trump, uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, will push Trump to talk about unifying things like infrastructure spending that just sound to the median voter like responsible, effective and energetic government. Yeah. So in a way, these are these are traditional Democrat positions. These are, I mean, you know, Bannon is a sort of Reagan, identifies as a Reagan Democrat, and Kushner is, is from a Democrat family. So are we seeing a sort of an official Rust Belt traditional Democrat presidency forming? We'll see. I mean, I, I don't know if it would be traditional in the sense that, um, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's it is Trump. Trump yeah. It is Trump. It is also, I suspect, it won't be, you know, this is the idea of a workers' party of the right will not be a workers' party that has much use for the existing, the still existent structure of unions that are out there. Yeah. So, you know, this is, you know, I think you're what you're going to see is instead of trying to increase the bargaining power of organized labor, you're going to see them approach it as we're going to take away the regulations we're going to um, alter trade deals in order to to just create more jobs and more opportunity, and and also that they're going to spend a lot of money. I mean, uh, Trump's the first thing he mentioned on the night of the election was a one trillion dollar spending scheme to improve and build out more infrastructure, and that certainly is aimed at re-employing men who you know lost their work as the the housing market slumped in the last decade yeah you know so we'll see i mean it's it's a it is a different approach i wouldn't say it's traditionally democrat but it is aimed at traditional democratic voters yeah there's been quite a lot of excitement over here about the fact that he talks about fair bilateral agreements and what with Brexit, <laughs> Brexit Britain, people are hoping that there will be a, a fair bilateral, certainly on the Brexit side, that there will be a, a fair bilateral agreement between America and Britain. And Trump certainly seems to have said that before when he when he came to Scotland the day after Brexit, he said Britain would be first in the queue and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's urgent and I would suspect Bannon would love the enthusiasm for that because he's also such a fan of Brexit and of yes. the uh, the European nationalists. And I think he would love the Trump presidency to provide an assist. And what bigger assist than to expedite and get the most important trade deal that Britain, a post-Brexit Britain would make than with the United States? Yes. Uh, it, I mean, maybe it would be second to a deal with the European market itself. Yes. Um, so, it, it, you know, getting that done would take a huge piece of, of Boris Johnson's uh, agenda. You know, it would check it right off <laughs> and uh, possibly build some momentum for, you know, I, I mean, in some ways, this is the, the talk, right, is that um, that post-Brexit Britain can just quickly do deals with the former Commonwealth 
and, and its former colonies, well, the biggest economy in the world, if we make it a priority, I think would lend credibility to that effort. Yeah. So that would suggest a sort of Bannon pushing kind of ironic globalized nationalism through Trump, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the under the least well understood phenomenon of our time is that the nationalist movements in Europe and now in America are so keen on each other mm. and talk to each other and even at the popular level root for each other. You know, a hundred years ago, you know, nationalist movements, you know, like the Irish might look to the Austro-Hungarians or to some other nation, but you're talking about just the elites, you know, yeah. just, just a few people in, in the elite part of these movements. But now it's Breitbart is getting 30 million people to care about Brexit or to care about Marine Le Pen's electoral chances in France yeah. or, uh, you know, uh, the Law and Justice Party in Poland. So it'll be interesting to see the Trump Le Pen dynamic playing out because I mean I think we're going to have a piece in the Spectator this week saying that the Trump uh, mole doesn't fit perhaps as neatly onto or certainly the Bannon worldview doesn't fit as neatly into France as it does perhaps in Britain. You got any thoughts on that? I'm not sure. I mean France is it's France is a world unto itself. I mean it, I mean in a sense it stands apart from everyone. Yeah. Um, I think we're still waiting to see what dynamic the candidates in France bring to the race. I mean, people are still looking at Fillon and and trying to understand exactly where he's positioned. Yeah. And I think the the bigger question in France is, you know, if the opponents like Fillon and, and others tacked to the right economically, and, and, you know, you saw people like Sarkozy try out, you know, American-style rhetoric on global warming... Mm. If they tack to the right, can Le Pen actually close the deal with former socialists and others that she would need to win to get over the hurdle? And I don't think so. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure Trump can help except by um, by being uh, successful or not a disaster. Maybe it would it would help at the margins. Yes, and probably actually staying as far away from Le Pen as possible. But I don't think Bannon will will help with that because... No, maybe not. I mean, the French notoriously don't like to imitate America. <laughs> <laughs> and other things in the statement that were uh, of interest, he talked about, uh, at the end, he made the statement, you know, for everyone, and I mean everyone. And this was while there was a sort of huge media hoo-ha going on about white nationalists in Washington, D.C. Again, that's he, he is going to successfully present himself as a unity president if the media are fixating on these effectively minor movements in, in the capital. Yeah, I think this is, uh, again, the media making a, a big mistake of, um, you know, when the White House puts out, a, or, or the, the transition team puts out a statement that they kind of reject this support, you know, the media nitpicks it and says, well, well, we asked for this statement. But of course, the media asked for it within 30 seconds of the, you know, this event in Washington, D.C. happening. This wasn't a statement that popularly would be seen as like it had to be drug out from the Trump administration. So, you know, in a sense, Trump can just coolly in these videos reassure rhetorically that he is working for all Americans and contrast himself with the kind of moral panic that is seizing the media. There is a real question of what 
what will Trump be able to deliver to minorities in America? I mean, uh, if if there is a huge surge in low-skilled labor employment or industrial employment, that would benefit substantially the position of, of minorities who are working. But there are, you know, many of the stats about the way racial minorities lag behind economically in America has to do with incarceration rates or or other things that can't be solved just by by getting more jobs. I mean, I suppose one thing that, that will excite quite a lot of people is his promise to withdraw immediately from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I wonder if it was. It sounded like quite a dynamic statement at the same time as he didn't say any of the things he promised a lot on the campaign trail, like um, building the wall and the temporary Muslim ban and so on. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just we're seeing a, a calmer Trump. I mean, you know, he also, he, he talked about withdrawing from the TPP, but essentially it was, um, he's giving a first 100 days statement. And so one thing he can do is notify an intention to withdraw from this agreement and, and then tell the public he's going to pursue this or that. What you didn't see was wild rhetoric of, I'm going to confront the Chinese or the Europeans about the value of their currencies in relation to ours. And he did not say, you know, I will send our, tr- our trade representative will begin uh, formulating tariff policies to begin uh, t- to use as a negotiating tactic in such a debate. So, you know, in a sense, he's just checking off the easy, easy things, but they all sound kind of modest and reasonable compared to how he campaigned. And, and there's a real question of, did Donald Trump just discover a very successful mode of campaigning for the presidency? And now, during this transition, he is trying to find his footing on, okay, a, a completely new persona for governing, or, or at least a, a different agenda. Yeah. I don't know if we'll get that. I mean, his his the talked about cabinet appointments still seem to fit with campaign Trump, but there's, there's definitely been mm. some shift. I mean, Chris Christie has been downgraded. Uh, it sounds like every few days, Rudy Giuliani's potential position in the administration is downgraded for someone more conventional yeah. and steady handed. So we'll, we'll yeah. see. Does, does this seemingly new persona fill you with hope then? My own personal hope is that Trump is, I want a new persona in the sense of Trump's improvisation, his his taste for provocation, I think is particularly dangerous uh, to America's standing in the world when applied to, you know, international norms. For instance, that, that tweet about mm. wanting Farage as his, I guess, drinking buddy slash ambassador to the uh, from the court of St. James. Uh, so... You know, I think that's very destabilizing. But at the same time, the Republican Party was moribund before Trump and some of his populist energy, uh, his focus on reemploying so many men who are out of work in the country. That's all to the good. And I hope um, I hope he can find a way to thread the needle and accomplish yeah. some of that. I mean, everywhere in the world, the the, the traditional labor parties have kind of tipped too far towards urban cosmopolitanism. And there is this unrepresented group of native working interests who um, who haven't seen anyone solicit their economic interests. Uh, so I'd like to see him try to do that. 
And how comfortable do you think the Republican Party would would have been with these job protecting signals that he was? I think they're going to be uncomfortable, and and the I think the test of the Trump presidency is whether he can put together a coalition for these ideas. You know, there is a possibility that uh, Ryan and the Congress, who have already gotten a, a head start on what they want to pass are going to try very hard to steer him towards only one lever, which is deregulation. And that they are going to, they may allow government spending. Uh, Republicans tend to care less about the budget when Republicans are spending the money. But as far as hampering trade or, you know, if, if Trump revives his proposal to and certain uh, tax loopholes for the financial industry. I mean, I think they will fight him on it. And the question is, will Trump find allies uh, among Democrats like Charles Schumer or, um, you know, Sherrod Brown for other initiatives? We'll see. I suppose in a way he's got quite a lot of, he'll have quite a lot of room to maneuver because the, the left will be so preoccupied with the media firestorm over racism or offensiveness or misogyny that actually the sort of real political conversation can happen away from the media and away from perhaps the sort of public left. You know, there's some debate already uh, on the left of can Democrats be allowed to work with him on anything or must they, because of Trump's unique dangers he poses to the American system, must they oppose him uh, just as fanatically or more fanatically than Republicans opposed Barack Obama. I don't think that debate is settled yet. You know, we'll see. You know, it could be very costly for the Democrats to oppose him on infrastructure spending or or other things that are seen as, as pro-job growth. And uh, he will, and I think that is why uh, Bannon, who is a little bit of the strategist at work, I, that is why I... I see his hand at work here because he's he seems to have outlined a 100-day agenda that is meant to ease opposition from the Democrats. Well, it will be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, Michael, I hope we'll talk to us again. Thank you so much. Uh, just a reminder that the Americano podcast is carrying on even though the election is over and you can subscribe to it on iTunes. 